Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Jonquilyn Hill, and today on The Weeds, the fight over medication abortion explained. If you've been keeping up with the news like I know you have, you know a lot has happened over mifepristone, the first in a two-drug combination for medication abortion. Even for the most weedsy among us, it's been a lot to keep up with. Up until recently, it worked like this. A patient would be prescribed mifepristone either at a doctor's office or via telehealth. After they pick it up from the pharmacy or get it in the mail, they take the first pill, mifepristone. This medicine keeps the pregnancy from growing. Then, up to 48 hours later, the patient would take the second pill, misoprostol. This pill empties the uterus. Any potential changes to this process are a big deal. According to the Guttmacher Institute, over 50% of all abortions in the United States are done via medication. And depending on how the courts ultimately rule, that could change. Two competing judicial rulings handed down almost simultaneously have set up what is widely expected to be a showdown at the U.S. Supreme Court. It all started 10 days ago when Texas Judge Matthew Kaczmarek ruled that the Food and Drug Administration was wrong to approve the use of mifepristone back in 2000. Right after Kaczmarek's ruling, a judge out of Washington ruled in favor of 17 states and the District of Columbia who sued to keep access to the pill. And if that didn't have your head spinning, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals weighed in and split the difference. A federal appeals court ruled Wednesday that mifepristone could stay available, but with new limits, including a ban on sending the pill through the mail. But then on Friday, Justice Samuel Alito issued an administrative stay while the Supreme Court considers the issue further. While there's more breaking news tonight on abortion rights, the Supreme Court is allowing a key abortion medication to remain widely available, at least for a few days, as the justices review a lower court ruling. As of this recording on Tuesday morning, the stay is still in effect. It's a hefty legal back and forth, and as it's all played out, I found myself wondering, why is this being handled in the court of law? Shouldn't medicine and its safety be in the hands of the FDA? I'm not the only one asking this. Pharmaceutical companies have filed briefs opposing this decision and what it could mean for the future of medicine in America. So, to make sense of all of this, I called a colleague, 
My name is Karen Landman, and I'm a senior reporter for health and science at Vox. Karen's also an epidemiologist, so she really knows her stuff. I started our conversation by asking her something that's been on my mind. Why are anti-abortion advocates targeting mifepristone when it's misoprostol that actually empties the uterus? So I don't know exactly what's in the heads of the people who are trying to restrict the use of mifepristone, but what I can say is that mifepristone, its FDA approval is for termination of pregnancy, while misoprostol's approval is actually for stopping digestive tract bleeding due to NSAID drugs, which include drugs like ibuprofen. You know, they're both used in terminating pregnancy, right? The standard of care is to use them together to provide medical abortion. But misoprostol can be used pretty effectively by itself, while mifepristone also can be used effectively, but not so much by itself. But I guess if you were going to try to take aim at the one that can most functionally provide a medical abortion by itself, you would aim at misoprostol. But that's not what, that's not what people have done. They have instead taken aim at mifepristone, and I'm guessing it's because that is the one that is FDA-approved for termination of pregnancies. Misoprostol can be used for abortions on its own. Mm-hmm. Why is mifepristone included in the first place, if that's the case? There have been trials um, of misoprostol alone and mifepristone alone. Those were earlier. Those were generally in like the 80s, at least the ones of mifepristone alone. And misoprostol has also been trialed alone, perhaps a little bit more recently. But regardless, each of those drugs used alone have issues that are kind of eliminated by using them together. When misoprostol is used on its own, it has a pretty high efficacy rate, but It also has a much higher side effect rate. People just feel a lot worse when they're being treated with it. They bleed more. They bleed for longer. It's a a much less pleasant experience than taking the two drugs together. Not that taking the two drugs together is a day in the park. Like There are also some unpleasant side effects that often go along with that, but they're more manageable. They can usually be dealt with at home. People rarely need to go to the hospital to be treated for their side effects that they have when the two drugs are used in combination. But alone, each of these drugs has issues. Before we jump even further into mifepristone, how does a drug get approved by the FDA in the first place? So it's a long process. FDA gets involved a number of times over the course of a drug's lifetime. The the first time is when it approves a drug after the drug has been designed. And drug design involves not only sort of all the stuff that happens in a lab to figure out how it should look molecularly, but also how safe it is. And that's usually, at this stage, that usually involves testing it in animals. So this is pre-human studies. This is called an investigational new drug. So a company or a research group developing a new drug would send all the data that it has on the drug safety in animals to the FDA for approval. And at this point, you know, the goal is to make sure that the researchers know what they're doing, that they that they should be developing a drug to begin with, you know, that there are no signals from the animal studies that this is an unsafe drug. They're making sure that they're using good lab practices, that there's no indication in the data that there's a lot of contamination of the drug and that they know what they're doing when they're doing research in animals and that they have a solid plan for then testing the 
drug safety and efficacy in humans if it gets approved. And they also, at that point, review any testing that has been done in humans prior to um, this particular application. So the FDA looks at all of those data, and then if they approve the drug, then the researchers take it back to the lab, and they do all the research that they need to do in humans before coming back to the FDA. So if you've ever heard of phase one, two, and three studies, these mm-hmm. are sort of studies that test safety and the efficacy of the drug, basically whether it's safe in humans and then how well it works in humans and how well it works compared to the alternatives to this drug in humans. All of those data then get sent back to the FDA for what's called a new drug application. And this is a really, really intense process. The the FDA looks at the line-level data from all of these studies and does its own analyses of the studies. They have their own statisticians, their own clinicians. And what they're looking for is anything that the researchers might have missed when they were doing their studies. Um, safety signals, suggestions that basically anything that suggests that this drug might need to be tested a little further, monitored further, that it's applications might need to be narrowed or widened, broadened, you know. So the FDA is a pretty cautious agency, and Mm. this is one of the places where that caution really shines. They really take a lot of care to review these data. So um, it's a pretty intense process. Is there ever any stickiness about the fact that, you know, they're reviewing this data, they're combing through it, but is there ever any stickiness around the fact that, you know, it's the companies providing the data? Is Does the FDA ever, you know, do their own tests? Like, how does that work? Yeah, sometimes the FDA might say, you know, this is not a high enough level of data. There are problems with these data. We need another trial. We need another trial done by somebody else. I don't know if you remember the AstraZeneca vaccine that um, Mm -hmm. the FDA did not like AstraZeneca's vaccine application because it was messy. They had problems in there. And it w- there were a lot of the problems were actually administrative, just the way they did not like the way they made some of the decisions within the trial setting. And they said, you need to do better. You need to fix this and then come back to us. Even if they approve a drug at this point, the FDA still monitors the safety of a drug after it's been approved and sent to market. So it stays involved in a drug's lifetime over, over the entire time that drug is on the market. So that's the process for drugs to get greenlit. Next, we'll get into Mifepristone's long and complicated relationship with FDA approval. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Thank you. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. It's The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. In his legal argument, Judge Matthew Kazmarek argues that the FDA didn't do its due diligence and that this is an unsafe medicine. And I just first and foremost feel the need to lay out that that is just not true. Regardless of how you feel about abortion, this medicine is safe for pregnant people to take. And Karen, I'm curious, how has it been evaluated, you know, in the grand scheme of things? So at the time that Mifepristone was approved in the year 2000, there already was a ton of data that the FDA was looking at. In addition to the many, many patients who had just been treated and had very low rates of adverse events in Europe and a variety of countries, including China, France, other European countries. So they had years of data uh, and safety data from those countries that they were reviewing. They also reviewed 10 trials, so really structured evaluations of the drug safety and efficacy. And those trials, by the way, did look at these drugs individually. They looked at the drugs together. Um, They looked uh, at about 16,000 patients across these 10 trials. They also looked at two U.S.-based studies involving about 2,100 patients across 17 centers. And they looked at successes and failures with these drugs. And they looked also at how the success and failure rates were different at different gestational ages. They looked at adverse events, and they documented the serious ones. They had a lot of data in in the year 2000 already when they evaluated this drug. And they nevertheless put it on a pretty strict safety protocol at that point. That was called subpart H. And that was intended to monitor the drug even more carefully. One of the things it required was that the people who prescribed this drug report any adverse events requiring hospitalization, any transfusions, and any more severe adverse events uh, back to the FDA. So there was pretty careful safety monitoring of this from the get-go. Once the drug was rolled into the REMS program, that continued, that safety monitoring continued up until some of the intensity of it was scaled back in 2016. But what it meant was that there was more data for mifepristone and misoprostol together than for most other drugs to help the FDA assess its safety and its efficacy. And over that time, it has consistently proven itself to be incredibly safe. It has a very low side effect rate. The FDA collects data on uh, severe side effects, whether they are caused by the drug or not. Uh, So, you know, even if somebody is hospitalized due to a car accident within, you know, a few days of getting 
a medical abortion, their their hospitalization gets reported. So, and even that rate is very, very low. So the data that we see from the most recent studies of the two drug medical abortions, safety and efficacy, completely mirrors the data we were seeing 20 years ago. The safety and efficacy has been stable over this time. And millions and millions of women have been treated with these drugs over this time. You mentioned RIMS or the Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. Tell us what that is and what that does and why it yeah. even exists in the first place. Yes. First of all, I want to be clear. This is a, It's very rare for the FDA to implement a REMS program for a drug, and it only does mm. so if the drug has a really high risk of having adverse side effects. So there are about 20,000 currently approved drugs by the FDA, currently FDA-approved drugs, and 61 of them currently have a REMS program. So a tiny fraction of drugs have these programs. About one to two of around 50 drugs approved every year get a REMS program. REMS programs are tailored to the drug. So they look different for every drug. The FDA can modify them um, as they go. They can uh, look like, you know, as little as just including a medication guide or an insert in the package. But they can also include what the FDA calls elements to assure safe use. And that can include things like having to be administered in a doctor's office, you know, with a few hours of observation afterward or, you know, all sorts of other things. Lab testing required after it's administered, all kinds of all kinds of things the FDA can require here. But it's not supposed to require elements that are not commensurate with the risk of the drug. And um, it's also sort of required to make these elements not unduly burdensome, especially for patients with functional limitations or um, who have difficulty accessing healthcare or who are in medically underserved areas. So it needs to balance um, its requirements with, you know, the drug's benefit and, and equitable access to the drug. For example, Flobanserin, the branding was Addy. This is the drug that was used to treat low sexual desire in women, still is. So Mm. when it was first approved, it was thought to basically have such a bad interaction with alcohol that women who wanted to take this to improve their sexual desire were told they couldn't drink, period. It's a daily drug. They're told don't drink, which... Boy, if you are trying to treat low sexual desire and you tell somebody (laughs) not to drink. Yeah, yeah. No glass of wine for you. Nevertheless. So obviously, you know, (laughs) there was a lot of interest in understanding how big of a problem this was. And also, if it was a problem, it was thought to be a pretty severe interaction. And so Flobanstern was given a REMS. It turned out the interaction was not as severe as everybody was worried about initially, and so the REMS was discontinued. Mm. So FDA can and does do this. Um, But, you know, there are drugs that persistently have uh, concerns. There's there's some antipsychotics. There are some drugs that are similar to opioids um, or that are sort of used for opioid treatment disorders that have potential for abuse, Um, and lots of other drugs that have other, you know, sort of safety concerns that you know, where the FDA thinks there's a lot of benefit to be gained from this drug, but we need to be careful, um, a little more careful uh, with this drug than we are with other drugs and watch it more carefully. And so those drugs will get a REMS. So mifepristone was originally approved by the FDA in 2000. Walk us through how restrictions around the use of the drug have changed. So the safety restrictions that were in place when mifepristone was first approved is in 2000. And basically, just to be clear, 
This was not technically a REMS, doesn't really matter, but it was rolled into the 2011 REMS when that came up. But so basically the safety restrictions were consistent between 2000 and 2016. And what Mm. these consisted of was number one, the drug could only be used for pregnancies where the gestational age was max seven weeks. So Mm. 49 days. It had to be prescribed under the supervision of a physician. So not just any physician, though. It had to be a physician who was able to diagnose pregnancy and who could surgically intervene if there were a problem. And for the most part, this meant somebody who could do a DNC, a, a dilatation and curatage, which is sort of the way that you um, you do uh, a surgical abortion in case the medical kind doesn't work. Yeah, and that's also, I mean, it's common among people who have miscarriages, too. Absolutely. Because, like, it's so that the parent doesn't get sepsis or whatever else. It's a it's a very common procedure. A super common procedure, but it's not a procedure that your average internist knows how to do, right? It's something mm. that an OBGYN would know how to do or that a family medicine doctor would know how to do. So it couldn't be just any doctor who prescribed it, but they also like it had to be not just prescribed in person, but you also had to take the medicine in the doctor's office, which meant you needed to have two doctor's visits just for taking the medications. The first one was mifepristone. You took that the first day in the doctor's office. Then you you had to come back a day or two later to take the misoprostol. And then you had to come back two weeks later for the third visit to confirm that the pregnancy had been terminated and everything was okay. That's a lot when you think about it. Three doctor's visits to have a medical abortion. There was a medication guide that outlined all of these, uh, you know, a lot of safety stuff and all of these requirements and a patient agreement that they needed to sign before taking a medication. And then there were all these reporting requirements on the side of the physician who was prescribing the drug. So they had to report any ongoing pregnancies, hospitalizations, transfusions, serious events, all these things. Okay, so the restrictions were fairly consistent from 2000 through 2016, but a pretty significant change happened in 2016. What led to that? First of all, by the time this modification happened, the drug had been used in about 2.75 million abortions in the U.S. Wow. So we had a ton more safety data at this time that showed that serious complications were extremely rare. And there was this 2013, this enormous 2013 review study that looked at results from 87 studies and included data from more than 45,000 people who'd had medical abortions actually around the world. And it showed, like I said, consistently safe results from using this medication, that it it effectively ended pregnancy in 95% of patients, that, you know, continuing pregnancy after receiving the drug was very rare, and that you know, severe symptoms really only occurred in maybe like three out of a thousand patients. And just to be clear what those symptoms are, they're things like vaginal bleeding and pelvic mm. pain and infection. Most of those can be treated effectively in a hospital or sometimes in an outpatient situation. But only one of these thousand patients who received the drug needed a blood transfusion. Also, just a really low rate of complication. They also found that this one problem that could happen after getting a medical abortion, which is the one that the providers were most worried about, which is basically a continuing pregnancy. And the re- one of the reasons that they're most worried about this is that there were concerns that if a, a fetus had been subjected to these drugs in the womb, uh, but then the pregnancy continued, that there would be birth differences that would affect the resulting infant's quality of life. So this is uh, an outcome that, you know, there's a lot of concern and understanding. And the researchers in this study identified 
a few practices specifically mostly around how to use misoprostol that greatly reduced the likelihood of an ongoing pregnancy after getting us other serious adverse events. Um, they tweaked the dosages, like I said, to kind of deal with some of the risk of ongoing pregnancy, and then said, you only really need to have one in-person visit. You don't need to have three. That is overkill. They also said that the person who prescribed the medication could be a non-doctor, so a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, a nurse midwife, somebody else with uh, the proper training, proper certification. As long as they had that, they could um, prescribe the medication. And also very, very importantly, perhaps most importantly, they increase the gestational age of pregnancies that would qualify to take the drug. So pregnancies up through 10 weeks could be terminated with the combination for medication abortion under this 2016 REMS modification, which is a big change. That meant that doubled the number of abortions that qualified for medication abortion. And big change. And there was a change in 2021 mm-hmm. regarding RIMS as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? So that eliminated the in-person prescribing requirement, which was also huge. It meant that now a person could just go and pick up their meds for a medication abortion from a pharmacy like you would almost any other drug. That's a big deal, especially when you think about folks who live in rural areas, folks who um, have trouble accessing health care. We're all a lot closer to a pharmacy than we are to a doctor's office, right? And it's a lot easier to roll into a pharmacy to pick up a medication than it is to get a doctor's appointment for all of this uh, to be prescribed. Was that change in 2021? Do we know if that was because of politics? I mean, you know, we had a more conservative court or was it, you know, it's the pandemic. We are all doing everything online, including going to the doctor. Was it, do we know why that change was The made? pandemic definitely had a lot to do with it. I think, you know, telemedicine really became sort of a much more important way to provide healthcare during the early part of the pandemic. And um, that was part of the argument to make this a drug that you did not need to see somebody in person to get. It was sort of argued that it was a health risk for people to have to show up in a provider's clinic to get a medication abortion. So yes, that pandemic did play a role in in making this change, making this modification. It also opened the door to receiving the medication through the mail. Uh, you know, a lot of pharmacies now fill prescriptions through the mail. And control over when a person gets an abortion and privacy are so, so important to the process. A lot of people who get abortions are ending pregnancies that they don't want because they're in tough situations. Uh, Not everybody, but this happens with some frequency. And making the medication, making this healthcare available to them with privacy, with control over when and where they take it, is super important. It's, um, it's, it's, It's a part of providing this medication equitably. Next up, more on Mifepristone and the future of abortion in America.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is The Weeds, and we're back with Karen Landman. So... We've gotten into the policy, but we really can't ignore the politics of this. How did Mifepristone get on rims in the first place? Was it medical precaution or was it political pressure? At the time Mifepristone was approved in 2000, it wasn't a brand new drug. You know, it had been approved in a variety of countries, like I said, for 10 to 12 years. And it had really strong safety data, and drugs with equally strong safety data weren't subjected to these kinds of restrictions. Jane Henney, who was FDA commissioner at the time the drug was approved, says that the restrictions were put in place because there were questions about its use and whether its rate and severity of adverse events would be similar or greater in the U.S. than in other countries because our healthcare delivery system was so different. So she says that, she says now, more, you know, she said recently, this is in, I think in something she wrote in the New England Journal, that there were good scientific reasons and perhaps good healthcare systems reasons to scrutinize mifepristone more closely in the U.S. than it had been in other countries. But you cannot ignore uh, just how much pushback there was from anti-abortion activists at the time. She hasn't said that the decision to implement the safety program for mifepristone was because of pressure from those organizations and from those activists um, or due to other political pressure, but it would not have been the first time that the FDA caved to pressure from the outside on how it regulated a drug, especially a drug related to pregnancy. So think about Plan B. You know Plan B? Plan B is emergency contraception. It's over-the-counter. It is not age-restricted. A lot of us know it as the morning-after pill. It was approved in 1999, but when it was approved, it was only approved as over-the-counter for people over the age of 18. That was a political decision. The FDA made that decision before it had reviewed all the data. This all this all came out much later in 2006, I believe, when the FDA was sued by the Center for Reproductive Rights. And in discovery, they found that the FDA's Reproductive Health Committee had basically been staffed by the Bush administration with a bunch of political operatives, that there had been a lot of pressure from the Bush administration to restrict use of this drug to people only 18 and over, and that people feared losing their jobs if they didn't do this. 
There was a lot of pressure around Plan B, and that only fell away over the years uh, and after a series of lawsuits. I mean, there were even during the Obama administration, there was conflict between the head of HHS and the head of FDA over whether access to this drug should be broadened to teens below a certain age. This doesn't happen for other drugs. You know, before Plan B, the FDA had never age-restricted an over-the-counter drug. And, you know, they hadn't consulted the Bush administration about other drug applications. So I wasn't there, and I admit that I've not yet spoken to anybody who was there at the time that this happened. It begs beggars belief that the FDA was subject to so much pressure around Plan B which is emergency contraception, but was not at all subject to political pressure around how it regulated uh, mifepristone, which is actually a a drug to end pregnancies. One thing that's very interesting, because, you know, Plan B and mifepristone uh, do different things. One prevents pregnancy, one ends pregnancy, but, you know, they both involve uteruses. What is it about What is it? Why? Why is it this particular, like when it comes to like women and their bodies and giving birth and birthing, like what is it that just draws politics like almost no other drug does? I don't hear the same drama, you know, surrounding Viagra or in the run up, you know, uh, we... uh, Opioids were used to be prescribed much more freely than they are now. Like, what is it about reproductive health, and in particular women's reproductive health, that draws this political ire? The answer is patriarchy. Like, patriarchy, <laughs> patriarchy rests on controlling women's reproduction and women's sexuality. And not just women's, but any weaker, historically weaker, historically marginalized group Keeping them down is how patriarchy keeps itself nourished and powerful. And this is just part of it. This is just the latest in, you know, millennia's worth of stories of patriarchy keeping itself alive by by crushing, birthing people under its boot heel and keeping tabs on them and controlling their access to things that make it possible for them to live fully autonomous lives. (laughs) This whole country is foundationally built on inequity, right? And you cannot, the people who are in power cannot maintain their power unless they manage to keep other people's power less, right? You can't be the most powerful one unless everybody else is somehow less powerful. This is a case about abortion, but if it's held up Are you hearing any concerns about what this could mean for, you know, getting drugs approved in general in the future? Does this have wider implications or does this just seem something like is going to stay narrow when it comes to dealing with drugs that assist in abortion? Well, I mean, if you look at what the rationale is that this judge used in finding standing for the plaintiffs, right, and actually finding merit in their arguments, the level of evidence, the quality of the data that he used to basically move forward with his ruling is incredibly low. That's what worries a lot of people, is that basically, you know, an activist group 
made a, a very emotional but not particularly rational or factual argument to a sympathetic judge who bought it hook, line, and sinker and used it to make a very consequential ruling about an agency that he really doesn't have a whole lot of insight into or, or certainly not the expertise of. And I think there's fear that any activist group could make a similarly emotional argument to a similarly receptive judge and get a similar result if this kind of uh, an action is considered okay. So I think it's very concerning to a lot of folks. It's hard to imagine a parallel example, but I mean, yeah, if you're somebody who believes that mental illness is actually a religious phenomenon and you think that antipsychotics are the work of the devil because they subvert some religious phenomenon. Hypothetically speaking, I'm not saying anybody believes this, but, you know, if you believe that and you make an argument, you know, there happens to be a judge of your same sort of religious outlook and you make an argument to them and they revoke the FDA's approval of all antipsychotics, you know, that deprives millions of people of an effective treatment for what centuries of science have documented as an organic illness. That's positively modified by by taking these this group of drugs. So it's just, it sets a precedent that is, uh, should be unacceptable to us as people who want to um, have our health problems treated and managed with drugs that we know work based on principles of good science, good practice, and not have our access to these drugs restricted by, by the sort of coalition of activist groups and activist judges who are willing to be sympathetic to their cases and to use their considerable power to take actions that affect uh, enormous numbers of people detrimentally. Dr. Karen Landman, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you all. This back and forth over abortion is far from over. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision about the future of the abortion pill sometime this week. This is the latest in what's likely to be quite a few legal battles. The post-Roe world is admittedly a really confusing and overwhelming time for reproductive policy. But don't worry. We'll be here to get into the weeds as the story changes and develops. That's all for us today. Thank you to Karen Landman for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Caitlin Pinzi-Moog and Elizabeth Crane fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. And if you have any burning questions about abortion or any other policy, send us an email, weeds at vox.com. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.